might surprise you to know that in this room this morning, there are people in direct opposition to God. And it might surprise you to know that you could be in direct opposition to God. Or let me say it like this. It's possible that this morning and in your life, you are standing in God's way. Question, who wants to stand in God's way? Who wants to oppose God? Well, this morning I'm going to walk us through a passage of Scripture. And and I want us to see from this passage how we can avoid opposing God. How we can avoid standing in God's way. And it's found in Acts chapter 11. So turn there with me. Acts chapter 11. So we continue our study through this New Testament book. Acts chapter 11. We're going to begin by just reading out loud verses 1 through 3. But we're going to focus our, our study this morning all the way down through verse 18. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. I read this morning in my quiet time, uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. I'm grateful for the Bible today. How about you? Acts chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Notice that. It says there in verse 1 that they had heard throughout Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And then in verse 2 it says there were some folks that criticized Peter in light of that, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Let's pray together this morning. Father, your word says that we're to trust you with all of our heart. We're to lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways we are to acknowledge you. And so Lord, in these moments we acknowledge you. We acknowledge your presence. We acknowledge our need for you. We acknowledge, Lord, that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And so, would you just work in our midst? Would you open the eyes of our hearts, Holy Spirit of God, that we might see the truths of Scripture and that we might have the wherewithal to apply what we learn? I pray that you would give us the grace to see Jesus more clearly and to live more fully for His glory. This time is all about you, so Lord, would you move with power. Would you anoint me as I preach? Would you anoint the hearers? And Lord, may we leave this place transformed. God, our goal is not religious ritual today. Our goal is life-changing worship. So Lord, would you move in that way, and we'll give you the glory for it. We love you, we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've worked our way through the book of Acts, we've seen the 
explosive expansion of the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, we see that the Spirit fell on the apostles and the followers of Christ in Jerusalem. Uh, 3,000 were saved on that day. And from Acts chapter 2 on, we see that the church is moving out in concentric circles from Jerusalem, just like Jesus said it would. would. Jesus said that his disciples would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And we've watched the gospel go from Jerusalem into the surrounding countryside into Samaria. But Jesus also said that the gospel would go to the very ends of the earth, the uttermost. And what we see happen here in Acts chapter 10 and 11 is we see a major moment in redemptive history where the gospel expands in a dramatic way into the Gentile world as the gospel is going to the uttermost parts of the earth. And last week we saw in Acts chapter 10 that Peter had this amazing experience. He was led by God to go to Caesarea where Cornelius, a Roman centurion, was located. He went into his home filled with friends and family of Cornelius. He began to preach the gospel. The spirit fell. Folks were saved. They were baptized. It was a life-changing worship service. And in chapter 11, we see the aftermath of Peter's experience of seeing these Gentiles gloriously saved. And he's brought in for questioning. And it's interesting to see how these questions transpire. What we're going to see as we walk through this text this morning, is we're going to see how we can avoid standing in God's way. Because that's Peter's heart. Look what it says down in Acts chapter 11, verse 17. This is the, the, the poignant verse in this text. After Peter tells the story of preaching the gospel to Cornelius and seeing people saved, he says in verse 17, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? So Peter says, my desire is not to oppose the will of God, the purposes of God. I don't want to stand against God. I want to be on his side going in the same direction he's going. I don't want to stand in God's way. So looking back at this text as it unfolds, how can you and I avoid direct opposition to God? How can we avoid standing in God's way? Well, there are three answers to that question that come from our passage this morning. First of all, We need to understand the gospel. We need to understand the gospel. And this is so very important because I believe there are fundamental misunderstandings of the gospel message in churches today. So if we're going to avoid standing in God's way, we've got to understand the gospel. Now, there are three aspects of the gospel that I want you to see as we kind of walk through this passage to help us to understand it better. But just kind of a quick Uh, word lesson here, word study lesson. The word gospel is the Greek word euangelion, and it literally means good news. So what is the good news? What is the news that's so good? Well, there are three aspects of this good news. First of all, there is the historical event. The historical event. Verse 13, Peter's recounting his story of going to Cornelius' home. In verse 13, he says, He told, the, told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. That's what Cornelius said. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So when Peter left Joppa, went to Caesarea, he talked to Cornelius. He says, Cornelius, tell me why you sent for me. And Cornelius said that an angel appeared and told me that if I send for you, you will give me a message. A message. Now, what is this message as it says there? Uh, in verse 14. Well, he's speaking here of the 
historical event, the historical event of the good news. You see, the good news is that something happened in human history that will change our lives and give us the gift of eternal life. So what happened in human history? Well, God in his grace and mercy and love saw the plight of humanity. He saw that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God looked upon humanity and saw that there is none righteous, no, not one. Because everyone, since the time of Adam and Eve, that have been born, has been born with a sin nature. And that sin nature has corrupted humanity and caused us to sin and rebel against God. But God did not leave us in our sin He did not leave us in our helplessness or hopelessness. God so loved the world that he sent his only son from heaven to earth. And Jesus Christ came to earth and took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And after he was born of Mary, he lived a perfect, matchless life. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong. As a matter of fact, all Jesus did was good. He taught He healed. He caused blind men to see, deaf men to hear. He even raised about three folks from the dead. He did nothing but good during his time upon the earth. But he did not come just to do good. He did not come just to be an example of what it means to serve and obey the Father. He came to rescue the lost. Jesus said over in Luke 19 that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came. He came to rescue you, and he came to rescue me. And here's how it had to happen. Jesus had to die in our place. He had to pay the penalty for our sin, and that's what he did. Of his own volition, he set his face like flint and and went to Jerusalem where he knew he would be betrayed. He knew he would be arrested. He knew he would be beaten. He knew he would be mocked. He knew he would be maligned. He knew he would be crucified, but he went anyway because of his love for us. And he went to Jerusalem and he went to the cross and he was nailed to that cross. He hung there from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, taking all of our sin on himself. The Bible says he became sin on our behalf. And on the cross, the wrath of God, the punishment for our sin, the punishment that we deserve was poured out upon Jesus who took our punishment in our place. And Jesus died on the cross. And after he died on the cross, he was taken down off that cross and buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And early on the third day, on Sunday morning, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He walked out of his tomb. He defeated death itself, raised by God to the glory of God the Father. And because Jesus Christ died for our sins, he can forgive us. And because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he can give us life beyond the grave. He's defeated death itself. Something happened in human history that means everything for us. Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, he rose from the grave, and that historical event is our only hope. So when we speak of the gospel, we say there's good news. As Peter shared this message with Cornelius and his household, an aspect of that is the historical event, what Jesus actually did to provide for our salvation. But not only does the gospel entail the historical event, it, it entails the personal response to that history. Look what it says back in Acts 11, verse 14. Cornelius says here, 
The angel told me to send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So he's saying when you hear this message, you'll be saved. How were they saved by this message? They were, they were saved by responding to what they heard. In fact, go back to Acts chapter 10. Look what it says in verse 43. Peter is, is preaching about Jesus here in the home of Cornelius, and he says... To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter here points to the response. Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the grave. Believe in him. You see, it's not just enough, and this is so important in the Bible Belt. It's not just enough to know some facts about Jesus. That doesn't save you. What saves you is personally responding to what Jesus has done for you. And over in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, it says, here's the response the apostles were looking for. Paul was going from house to house, teaching repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And so salvation comes when you say, I don't want to live this life anymore. I don't want to go this direction anymore. I want to turn my back on my sin and my idols. I don't want those things to rule me and, 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 and be what I'm all about. I want to turn from that sin, and I want to embrace Jesus Christ, my only hope, as my personal Lord and Savior. And when you turn from your sin to Jesus Christ in faith, that's when you are saved. And it's really simple. God wants us to not complicate things. When you have that kind of faith in Christ, you, 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 you communicate it. You articulate it by calling on his name. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Over in Romans 10, 13, it says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord in faith, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's simple, isn't it? You say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I don't want to go the direction I'm going. I want you to forgive me. I want you to save me. I want you to transform me. I want to follow you. And when you call on his name in faith, you are converted by the grace of God. You are forgiven of your sins. You're given the hope and promise of heaven. And you have a personal relationship with God. Wow. There's the the personal response. And so, listen, here's the question this morning. The question is not do you just know about the history related to Jesus. The question is, have you personally appropriated the work of Jesus in your life? Have you seen your need for forgiveness and asked Jesus to forgive you in faith? The personal response But third, as we think about the gospel and understanding it, there's the historical event, there's the personal response, but third, there's the scope of the gospel. Look what it says back in Acts chapter 11, verse 12. God appears to Peter and gives him this this vision. As a matter of fact, let's back up to uh, verse 3. These Jewish leaders criticize him, saying, You went uncircumcised men and ate with them, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. 
And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. He's speaking here of the Jewish dietary laws found in Leviticus 11. He saw some animals on that sheet that were considered unclean by those dietary laws. And Peter said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good Jew. I would never eat those things. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. You see, the Jewish dietary laws were a major barrier between the Jewish and Gentile world. And the Lord understood that if the Jewish Christians were going to go to to the Gentiles with the good news and enter their homes and eat with them and and encounter them with that good news, then they would have to to lay aside those dietary laws. So God said they are obsolete. They're, They're no longer in effect because Jesus came and fulfilled the law and you no longer have to live according to those Jewish dietary laws. Mark chapter 7 teaches this. So in other words, hey Peter, there's no longer a barrier. You can go to the Gentiles. You can go in their home. You can share a meal with them because you can encounter them with the gospel. And Peter says in verse 12, the Spirit told me to go with them. Make no distinction. In other words, the gospel is for the Gentiles just like it's for the Jews. That's the scope of the gospel. And then look what it says in verse 15. As I began to speak here in the home of Cornelius... The Holy Spirit fell on them, watch this, just as on us at the beginning. Peter's saying, remember the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem? We were gathered there and the Holy Spirit fell on us as a gift of God to empower us to preach the gospel. Well, guess what? I was in the home of a Gentile and I was preaching the gospel and God gave them the gift of the Spirit just like he gave it to us. And Peter understood by that reality that God was not making a distinction between Jew and Gentile. The gift of the gospel, the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of the Spirit is for everyone that believes in Jesus Christ. So the scope of the gospel is this. The gospel, the good news, is for everyone. Here's how James Montgomery Boyce says it. From this time on, people were to become members of God's family by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and it would not be necessary for them to go through the door of Judaism first. In other words, it wasn't Jesus plus the dietary laws or Jesus plus circumcision. It was Jesus that saves. And so they didn't have to go to the the Gentile world and say, hey, if you really want to be right with God, be a good Jew. No, they say, if you want to be right with God, embrace Christ as your Savior. Faith in Christ is what saves, period. Moreover, Boyce writes, Jews who were Christians were to have fellowship with their Gentile brothers and sisters who had not become Jews but had nevertheless believed in Jesus. There was to be one church, not two churches, which is what would have happened otherwise. And so that speaks of the scope of the gospel. God wanted to make one body, one church, out of people from very different ethnic backgrounds and show his glory through the unity of Jew and Gentile who were united in embracing Christ as their Savior and following him as Lord. And that's the... The scope of the gospel. Who is the gospel for? The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And 
We can stand in God's way. Hear me. We can stand in God's way when we keep the gospel to ourselves. Because God wants to save everyone all around the world. Different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different languages. And when we keep the gospel to ourselves, you know what we're doing? We're standing in God's way. When we fail to understand the scope of the gospel, we are in direct opposition to God. That's a scary place to be, right? This summer I discovered a new snack. And I don't know how I've missed these all these, these years, but... My aunt got me started in uh, vacation in Florida, got me started on golden Oreos. Have you had these things? Now, I know there's regular Oreos, chocolate, you know, chocolate sandwich cookies, and they're delicious. And my kids love chocolate, you know, just regular Oreos. But I'd seen golden Oreos for you. I've never tried them. But I ate some golden Oreos down there with some coffee. Wow. I mean, what? I mean, it just goes great with coffee. I just give that heads up. Don't make a rush on Kroger or Walmart after we're done, all right? I don't want them to sell out. But I'm telling you, golden Oreos go great with a cup of coffee. And, and, and I just, so when we got back from vacation, I went to Kroger to get, grab a few things. And you know what I got? I got a pack of regular Oreos for the kids. A pack of golden Oreos for me. I got back home. I said, here, here are your cookies. Here are my cookies. And I opened them up. And my kids came over to my, my bag like a bunch of locusts. And, and just started devouring my golden Oreos. I said, no, those are yours over there. These are my cookies. Those are yours over there. I wanted to hold on to them. They were mine, right? Well, sometimes we'll do the same thing with the gospel. God so loved the world, and yet we want to keep this wonderful message to ourselves. And when we do that, we are standing in God's way. There's a a second way to avoid standing in opposition to God. a, A way to avoid standing in God's way. Number two, we need to stand for the gospel. Not only do we need to understand the gospel, we need to stand for the gospel. Because here's the deal. There will always be attacks on the gospel and perversions of the gospel that we must stand against. What I want to do is I want to walk through this passage and give you three ideas that twist the truth of the gospel and hinder the expansion of the gospel. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but this just comes from this text. These are three things that are prevalent in our day that hinder the gospel going to the uttermost parts of the earth, changing people's lives. Number one is racism. Racism. And by racism, I mean disdain for people of different ethnicities. Disdain for someone because they're different than you. They speak a different language or have a different background or, or have a different skin color or uh, have a different socioeconomic status. It's, it's, it's disdain for people that are, that are different than you, specifically people of different ethnicities. That's how we see it most of the time. And this is the deal in Acts chapter 11. Look what it says in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. What were you doing? Hanging out in the home, sharing a meal with Gentiles. Uncircumcised men. They're not Jewish. They're Gentiles, different ethnicity. And as I've documented, as we've marched through Acts, there was great hostility 
between many of the Jewish people and many of the, the Gentile people. As a matter of fact, the Jews hated Caesarea, the city where Cornelius was located, because it was mostly a, a Roman city that celebrated Roman culture. And, and there's a great division between Jew and Gentile. So it was amazing that this Jewish fisherman named Peter walks into Caesarea. And, and then he walks into a Gentile's home. And he shares the good news with them. And he shares a meal with them. But when some of the Jews back in Jerusalem heard this, they were flabbergasted. They could not believe that a good Jew would walk into the home of a Gentile. And notice their, their concern. You shared a meal with them. What's going on? And so we see here, bubbling up in the, the, the early church, this, this racism, this desire to keep the gospel to themselves and not go to a different group of people with that good news. And racism always twists the truth of the gospel. Listen to me. Racism is not merely a social issue, even though it is a social issue. Racism is a gospel issue. And if you cling to prejudice and you cling to racism, I want you to hear me carefully. You are in sin and you are in direct opposition to God because everybody on the face of this planet is made in the image of God and has intrinsic value and worth. And I want you to know that Jesus went to the cross to die for people of every tribe, every tongue, every race, every background, every ethnicity. We ought to love people the way God loves people, right? So racism twists the gospel, and it's wrong. Secondly, legalism twists the gospel. And by legalism, I mean adding to faith alone in Christ alone as a requirement for salvation. Notice what it says in Acts 11 verse 2. It says, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. The circumcision party was made up of of people that said, you know what? This gospel about Jesus, that sounds good. You know, we'll go ahead and say Jesus is the Messiah and and Jesus saves. But really, if someone wants to be right with God, they need Jesus, but they also need to be circumcised like a good Jew. And and if they're not, they they can't expect to have a right standing before God. And so their deal was theological. It's Jesus plus something else. And I want you to hear me carefully. Jesus plus anything is legalism. The gospel says faith alone in Christ alone saves, not Christ plus doing something. In this text, the Judaizers are saying, hey, the circumcision part, hey, this is, hey, that's great, Peter. We're glad you went into the home, I guess, and preached the gospel, I guess, but have they been circumcised? And they were legalistic. I like this quote from John Polhill. He writes, Peter had himself been convinced of God's inclusion of the Gentiles. Now his fellow Jewish Christians in Jerusalem need convincing. You know, God took Peter through a process with the vision and the circumstances to change his paradigm to know, hey, the gospel's for Gentiles too. I'm going to go to the Gentile world. There's no barrier anymore. I go to them and I preach to them and I love them. There's no barrier. But the The Christians in Jerusalem had not yet had this paradigm shift. That's why they're calling Peter into question. Peter had himself been convinced of God's inclusion of the Gentiles. Now his fellow Jewish Christians in Jerusalem needed convincing. The strongest reservations seem to have been entertained by a group of especially conservative Jewish Christians whom Luke called those of the circumcision. 
Evidently, they represented a strongly Jewish perspective and felt that any Gentile who became a Christian would have to do so by converting to Judaism and undergoing full Jewish proselyte procedure, which included circumcision. Hence, they were known as the circumcision group since they would require it of all Gentile converts. So you say, okay, Peter comes into town. He explains things to him. Surely this circumcision group went away, right? Well, look over in Acts 15. Acts 15, this is... The passage called the Jerusalem Council. We'll get to it down the road. But it says there in verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they believed. Jesus plus circumcision saves you. That's what they were teaching. And, And we know in Paul's letters that the, the expanding church into Greece and Asia Minor dealt with this issue. Paul would go in and say, hey, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Place your faith in him. And, and they would call out on Christ and be saved and the church would start. Paul would leave town and here came the circumcision guys. And they said, did Paul talk to you about circumcision yet? Because if you really want to be saved, you need to go through that step. Which I'm sure blessed the people, right? And so... Legalism, listen to me, adding anything onto the gospel, Jesus plus anything is legalism. It twists the gospel. It is wrong. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through Christ is the way to be saved. We've got to be very careful about adding these requirements onto the gospel. Anything besides Jesus is a perversion of the good news. And there's another issue here, another thing that, that twists the gospel. It is called ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism. What in the world does that word mean? It means that, that we evaluate other peoples and cultures according to the standards of one's own culture. We evaluate other peoples and cultures according to the standards of one's own culture. Back in Acts chapter 11, they're saying, Hey, you went into a Gentile home and ate the food they were eating? And they were looking through the lens of their own culture. Not necessarily the teachings of Christ. Because Jesus said the the food laws in Leviticus 11 are now obsolete. That's what Jesus said. Ethnocentrism is when you look at another culture and say, my culture is superior. And because my culture is superior, the way I do things is superior, then then I don't really want to have anything to do with the folks in that culture. And 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 if they want to relate to me then they're going to have to drop their culture and take on my culture. That's ethnocentrism. If if, if they're they're going to to be on my team, a part of my church, part of my faith family, then they've got to adopt my culture and drop things that are important to them. That's ethnocentrism, and it is alive and well today. Craig Keener writes about this party of the circumcisers. He says, they appear, listen more concerned about the breach of custom than about the miracle of conversion. They're more concerned about the breach of custom than they are the souls of these Gentiles in Caesarea. Notice their first question is not about, hey, are these folks going to heaven or hell? But hey, how dare you eat with them? Isn't that striking? Ethnocentrism cares more about custom than it does about people's souls. And it's alive and well Today, let me give you an example. A pastor in 
Tampa, Ken Witten, well-known pastor. Pastor's a huge church down there, Idlewild Baptist Church. I heard him preach at a conference one time, and he told this, this story that illustrates this truth well. He said his church was reaching out to others, and they began to reach out to folks that uh, rode motorcycles. And this one guy who was in a motorcycle gang heard the gospel, and he was saved. You know what he started doing? He started coming to church. And not only that, this man who was saved out of a motorcycle gang started singing in the choir. And Ken Winton said, this guy's custom was to wear a bandana on his head. And he said he didn't even take it off in the choir. So he said, I'd be sitting there, and the choir would get up, and they'd be singing a song. He said, all I could think about was the bandana. I mean, all, all, all I could see in that, that huge choir was just this man in a bandana. He said, it just bothered I couldn't get over it. Every time I show up at church, here comes the bandana man. Ken Witten, this pastor, said, but then God got a hold of me. And I realized I was more concerned about the bandana than that man's soul. I was more concerned about custom than I was thrilled with the fact that this man was in our choir singing praises to God. You see, ethnocentrism says, hey, if you want to be a part of this church, you need to lay down some of your biker gear and then we'll accept you. The gospel says, Jesus saves. And if you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we are brothers in Christ. See the difference there? And so, we see here these, these perversions of the gospel message To twist the gospel and to hinder its advance is to stand against God and his purposes. Racism, legalism, ethnocentrism, all of those things are in direct opposition to what God is doing in the world. Direct opposition. Which leads me to this point. You and I need to be diligent in standing for the truth of the gospel even when facing opposition. Now, it might surprise you to know that Peter, who took this bold stand in Acts chapter 11, explains to them what happened, had a, had a slip-up. matter of fact, turn over to Galatians with me very quickly. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to move quickly here, but let me show you what it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. This is, this is sometime after this, it, this encounter that Peter had with Cornelius. And saw the vision on the sheet. And look what it says in verse 11 of Galatians 2. Paul's writing here. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That's interesting. Why would Paul, the apostle, oppose Peter, the apostle? Because, he says, he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that's the leadership in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles, just like he was in Caesarea with Cornelius. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Here come the circumcision police again. And say, okay, we hear there's some Christians in Antioch. Have they been circumcised? Because if they want to be saved, they must be circumcised. And Peter fears them and their influence. So look what happens. It says, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct 
was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so Paul confronts him. Saying, Peter, you're not being consistent. You remember what God taught you. You remember going to Caesarea. You remember eating in Cornelius' home. You remember living with the Gentiles and loving them and sharing good news with them. But now you fear these, these circumcisers and you won't associate with Gentiles anymore. Paul calls him on it. And the implication is that this issue was, was addressed and overcome in Antioch. But you and I need to be careful, listen, to stand for the gospel. Even in intimidating circumstances, we need to stand for the good news and what's right and not back down. Because if we back away from the truth of the gospel, we are standing in God's way. Final thing, and we'll be through. How do we avoid standing in God's way? We need to understand the gospel. We need to stand for the gospel. But third, we need to celebrate the gospel. Look what it says back in... Back in Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, Peter says, As I began to speak, verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them, Cornelius and his household, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John, baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, immersed in the Holy Spirit, given as a gift. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The people accepted the truth that Peter relayed to them. This certain group of, of the circumcision party heard the story and said, Oh, God saved them like he saved us. God gave them the Spirit like he gave to us. Oh. It says there, I think it's interesting, that they fell silent. It took them a moment to deal with their, their racism and and their legalism, and their ethnocentrism. But they think, okay, we understand the gospel's for everyone now. The acceptance of the fact that God was saving Gentiles as well as Jews was a major turning point in church history because from here on out, the gospel explodes into the Gentile world. We'll see it next week in Acts, end of Acts chapter 11. So the people accepted the truth, but then the people celebrated the truth. Look what it says there in verse 18. They heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God. They, they exalted God in light of this new knowledge that God wanted the gospel to go to Gentiles too and he wanted to save Gentiles too. And here's what I want to leave you with as we close down our time. The fact that God is saving people from every tribe and tongue is the most thrilling news in the world. So why is it the most thrilling news in the world? Two reasons. One, because dead people are being given life. When someone is saved, a dead person is brought to life. Look at me for a moment. This is so important. Don't miss this. I believe we yawn when people are saved today instead of celebrating. Here's why. We don't understand the miracle of conversion. We should be just as astounded when we see people, someone saved as the people were outside of Lazarus' tomb. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who had been dead four days, walked out of the tomb alive. And the people were astounded. We should be just as astounded when a spiritually dead person is brought to life by the power of Jesus Christ. That's why it's thrilling. Because when someone is saved, 
Dead people are being brought to life. They are being forgiven. They are being transformed. They are being saved. And then second, the fact that God is saving people from every tribe and tongue is the most thrilling news in the world because God is receiving the glory He deserves. You see, every time a new believer comes into the kingdom and begins to worship Jesus, Jesus is getting more worship, and that's what He deserves. Jesus deserves worship. He's worthy of worship from everybody on the face of this earth. And we should want to see him get more glory by seeing more people saved so that they will give him glory. Amen? And so the fact that God has has expanded the, the reach of the church and the gospel to the very ends of the earth is the most thrilling news in the world. Do you celebrate the good news? Do you celebrate the gospel? You know, we celebrate birthdays, right? We celebrate weddings. We celebrate anniversaries. You know what we do? We celebrate what we value. Do you celebrate the fact that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son? That whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you celebrate that? You celebrate what you value. And if you don't celebrate what God is doing in human history and what God is doing in our community and what God is doing in our nation and what God is doing in our world, you don't value the right thing. The people heard this news. The gospels for Jews, the gospels for Gentiles, and they glorified God. They were thrilled by that. And so here's the point of it all. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Salvation is, oh, this is so good. Salvation is a gift. Everyone say gift. Salvation is a gift that anyone can receive by faith in Jesus Christ. So we should not hesitate to offer it to all people. Let me say it again because you're not celebrating. Salvation is a gift that anyone can receive by faith in Jesus Christ. So we should not hesitate to offer it to all people. That's the truth of Acts chapter 11. That's what we ought to walk away with. That's what the conclusion Peter came to. That's the conclusion these these folks in Jerusalem came to. This party that met him with these criticisms. Are you grateful today that God loves the world or... Are you standing in God's way?